So this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 4, we're particularly uh, looking at um, persecution. If you come to the church regularly, you'll know that there's a, uh, a series now in, in Acts, chapters 1 to 9, and uh, in fact there's 10 topics, 9 chapters, I'm not sure how that works, and those uh, topics over the recent weeks have been the gift of the Spirit, birth, growth, outreach, this week is persecution. Next week, opposition, administration, martyrdom, opportunities, and conversion. So a lot of topics there in those chapters, those first nine chapters of the book of Acts. As I say, this week we are looking at Acts and chapter 4, and looking particularly at the beginning of persecution of the early church. It would probably help if you've got uh, your Bibles open at uh, chapter 4, because we'll be going through that together. And... Um, those who know certainly the, uh, the, the book of, of Acts, and I'm sure everyone here is familiar with that, will know that as soon as the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, then Satan issued a ferocious attack upon the early Christians. Pentecost was followed by persecution. Chapter 2 presents, in a way, an idyllic, picture of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, its members having received forgiveness and the Holy Spirit were extremely conscientious in their learning from the apostles, in their worship of God, in their care of one another and their witness of those who were yet outside their fellowship. As John Stott says in his commentary, everything was sweetness and light. Love, joy, and peace reigned. And that was true of the first two chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. Indeed, as we look at the Acts, the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2 are about the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, chapters 3 to 6 are about the works of Satan. And the, the book of Acts contains some terrible stories about the persecution. And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear more about opposition and even martyrdom that came about in those uh, scriptures. But today, we're only looking at uh, Acts and chapter 4. But um, I don't know about you, if you read uh, books, I guess most of us read, read books. I read some deep and meaningful books, but I also mean read some very light books, what I call twaddle. You ever read some twaddle? I read a lot of twaddle. The kind of books where I can't be bothered to think. And I don't want to think about anything deep or meaningful. I just want to be entertained. Normally when I'm on a long journey and my brain's not working very well. You could say my brain often doesn't work very well. And uh, some of those books are very exciting. And I'm very keen to know what happens at the end. One or two of them are downright boring. I don't know how they get prizes for Booker Prizes and other things. I don't even understand what they're talking about. But sometimes I'm tempted to look at the very last page, either because it's so exciting that I want to find out what happens in the end, or because it's so boring, I'm not going to read the rest, I'll just get to the end and give it to someone else, or, or chuck it out. Some of them, you know, I didn't even give to someone else. They're such a waste of time, I chucked them out. I wouldn't bore one of my friends with such a book. But if you want to know what happens in the end of the Bible, read Revelation. If you want to read about the horrors of Satan, read Revelation. Because 
Revelation depicts Satan in such a horrible way that we can hardly imagine. But of course, Revelation also tells that story of the final victory, where we see that Jesus has already defeated Satan, has already defeated death. But his strategy, Satan's strategy, was carefully developed. And over the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we'll see that. His first and his crudest attack was in physical violence. He tried to crush the church by persecution. His second, a more cunning assault, was upon corruption and compromise. Which, if you were to read now chapter 5, don't do it now because we're talking about chapter 4. But if you look at that, you'll read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. How immediately in the church became corruption. His third and his subtlest ploy was distraction. Even with the apostles, he sought to deflect their job of preaching the gospel by involving them in his secondary issue, by administration and all those other things which have bogged down so many of our lives. And so these were the weapons of Satan. Physical persecution, moral subversion and professional distraction. But the devil's crudest weapon is and was physical violence. In this book of uh, chapter 4, we're going to be reading about Peter and John who were arrested. They were jailed, they were tried, they were forbidden to preach, they were warned and they were released. But you know, the second time, and we're not going to read about this today, the second time they were, they were taken into custody, before they were released, they were flogged and forbidden again to preach. But today, we're only looking at this chapter 4. But we need to look at it in context, don't we? And I don't know whether you looked at it last week, but you will certainly know the story of uh, chapter 3. Peter and John went to pray. They went up to the temple to pray, and as ever, they passed by the beautiful gate, a man who was over 40 years of age, who was lame, couldn't walk, as I understand it, from birth. And Peter and John went along, and in the famous words of the authorised version, which we all know and love so well, then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man rose, didn't he? But he not only rose, he got up and he went with Peter and John to the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Everyone recognised this man. He'd been sitting there for 40 years asking for one or two pennies. But instead of that, on that Sabbath day, he walked leaping and praising God. What a spectacle. What a fabulous testimony to the power of God. And then Peter, and it said in Acts and chapter 3, which we're not looking at today, but to get it in context, fellow Israelites, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if it's by our own power? that we have made this man walk. It's not our own power. This is the power of the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, who has been glorified by his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You 
disowned him before Pontius Pilate. You disowned the Holy and the Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released in his place. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. Well, that's strong stuff, isn't it? That's strong stuff to accuse the men of Israel and the people of Israel. Peter went to, on to explain how the man was healed. We are witnesses of this. It's by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, the man who you now see has been made strong. It is in Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. And that's the answer, isn't it? I'm quoting from chapter 3. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as is your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Peter says, repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Inflammatory? Of course it's inflammatory, isn't it? This is the message of the gospel. This is the message that has inflamed passions since Jesus stepped foot on this earth. This is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Inflammatory? It was to the Sadducees. Please turn with me to chapter 4. And you can see this in chapter 4 and, and verses 1. When the, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the, the apostles were teaching and the people proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. But the Sadducees, as you well know, didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in it. In a way, you can't blame them, can you? It's a difficult thing to believe in. And by the way, who's ever been raised from the dead before the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a very difficult thing to believe in. They didn't believe it. But they weren't prepared to accept it. The ESV Study Bible says that the Sadducees, and you know this, don't you, represented a privileged aristocracy who worked closely with the Romans, the occupiers, to protect their own political and economic interests. And therefore, the Sadducees were upset with Peter's preaching for many counts. Firstly, because they were talking about the resurrection, but secondly, because they were talking about a link with a definite messianic message that was likely to be viewed as the Romans, by the Romans, as revolutionary. And so there's a load of things that are wrong with the view of the Sadducees. Firstly, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But um, secondly, because that didn't fit their view of what God was like. A lot of people, they like to think, imagine of what God is like. And they like to say, my God is like this. My God is such a kind and loving God that he will let everyone into heaven. That's the kind of God I imagine, they say. I've heard Charles, who's now playing the organ, but he's often said, hasn't he, that people try to put God into a box. There was a lady on the radio the other day who was painting her picture of her God, the type of God that she believed in. God is God, isn't he? 
He is who he is. He is the almighty one. He's not who we imagine him to be. If we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. The Sadducees had their own preconditioned idea of God. And secondly, the apostles were upsetting the Sadducees, both politically and economically. You know, politics and economics don't change. Politics today, you look in the House of Parliament, you look in business, you see people that are working for the political end. Some of them, it's because their heart is in the right place. Some of them are truly vocational. But we know so many, it's not because of their own political and vocational needs. It's because of their economic standards. Because to do a certain thing is good for their own pocket. It protects their own position of power and authority. And this was just what happened all those years ago. That Peter and John, by preaching this word, were, were threatening the political stability of the Sadducees. They were threatening their own economic issues, uh, their own uh, pockets, if you, if you like. These are common human traits. They're not confined to the, uh, the, the twaddle novels that I read or the type of films that you see on the television. This uh, pride and ego and arrogance and love of power and position has been prevalent throughout the ages. And so what did they do? Verse 3, they seized Peter and John. Uh, because it was evening, they put them in jail to reconvene the court next morning. Um, but by that stage, says the scriptures, chapter 4, verse 4, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men believed grew to about 5,000. So if you can imagine 5,000 men, if we believe the commentaries that are written, they didn't count the ladies. Not fair, is it? <laughs> didn't count the ladies. So let's say for every man there was a lady, and let's say there was 10,000 people. So there were 10,000 people who had been listening to what Peter and John had to say and were believing in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is Arab street spring proportions, isn't it? You think about what happened in that square in uh, Manama, in Pearl Square, in Bahrain's capital, in Tahrir Square, in Cairo, in Egypt, in Taksim Square, in Istanbul today. People were gathering. This was a similar situation, and it made the authorities feel extremely uncomfortable. They didn't know how to handle it. So they put Peter and John in prison. The next day they called them before the great high court, the Sanhedrin. There were 71 members of this court. There were 70 elders, according to the pattern of numbers, plus the high priest. It was dominated mainly by the Sadducees, but of course there were also the scribes, the lawyers of the day. There have always been lawyers. They get everywhere, don't they? There's always lawyers. There were lawyers then, just as there are now. I don't know whether they charged so much in those days. They probably did. But I spoke about looking at the end term, about looking at Revelation. But Peter and John would have known what was going to happen to them. Luke certainly knew. Luke wrote the book of Acts, didn't he? He also wrote a gospel. And in that gospel, he wrote, he recorded Jesus' words when he said that the disciples would be hated, insulted, and rejected in Luke chapter 6. That they would be brought to trial before the rulers and authorities. Luke chapter 12, that they would be persecuted and imprisoned on account of his name. Verse 21, 
But Peter and John, they'd read the book, they'd been with Jesus, they'd heard his words, they knew what would happen. And the next day, verse 5 says, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they said, by what power do you do this? Then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness, showing to a man who was lame and asked how he was being healed, then let me tell you. And he could have said, he could have said, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? You know, we've all passed this man, haven't we? He's been sitting at this gate for 40 years. Poor chap, couldn't walk. All we've done is helped him walk. What is wrong with that? In today's language, they could have said, what is your problem? That's what young people say, isn't it? What's your problem with that? We just made him walk. You got a problem with that? All we were is kind to a poor, lame man. But he didn't say that, did he? And maybe you want to check with me in verse 10 what he did say. What Peter said, then know this, you and all the people. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This man stands before you, is healed by Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you can be saved. That's inflammatory, isn't it? And you can, uh, you can talk about the church as much as you like. You can talk about jumble sales, you can talk about village fates, you can talk about playing music, you can talk about secondary issues. You can even talk about miracles, and people will talk to you quite gladly about that. But when you start to mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, people get uncomfortable. They get a little bit unset, uh, upset. Why? Because there is power in the name of Jesus. They know this. It is by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you don't have to be a master builder to know about that, do you? Even the first toy probably was a pile of building blocks. If you don't remember that, you remember that of your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your, your friends' children. And we all know that if you don't put the big block at the bottom and the little block at the, at the top, then it'll fall down even before your little one knocks it down. Because you must have a firm foundation. They were quoting from the Psalms. It's what we know. The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. You killed the author of life. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Does that mean what it says? Does that really mean what it says? No other, no other way to be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to know God as our Heavenly Father than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says, isn't it? There's many people who don't like that. They don't agree. How can it be this way? Surely a God of love will let everyone into heaven. What about the other religions? It is clear, isn't it? The scribes and the Pharisees did not like it. Many people in history have not liked it. Many people today do not like it. Many strongly object. Even some people in the so-called established church don't like it. 
Even some people here this morning may not like it. But salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. It's not open to debate or argument. It's not intended to be arrogant. This is good news. This is good news, isn't it? Because it's open to all mankind. The apostles were not saying this to prove a point, to defend Jesus, because they wanted to upset the leaders and the authorities of the day. They'd given up everything to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God for the whole of mankind. Peter saw one man's healing of his, of his physical condition to be a sign, a unique sign of this picture of salvation. So verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. This doesn't mean to say that they thought they were stupid. They just, they just hadn't been to the, you know, the university, if you like. They hadn't studied the scriptures in the same way as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But Peter and John weren't stupid. But they recognized the education they'd had was three years living with Jesus. Three years watching Jesus, living his words, and understanding, observing him. Verse 14 said, But since they could see the man who had been healed was standing with them, they couldn't say anything. They ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot ignore this. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak any longer in this name. So says verse 418, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, that was a naive plan, wasn't it? That was naive, wasn't it? Just to ask them, do us a favour, boys. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> don't, don't mention it anymore. Could, could we just kindly ask you to just back down a little bit. They didn't say it like that, did they? said, so we're warning you. We are warning you. We're threatening you. Do not mention this name again in public. And Peter and John replied, well, judge for yourself. Which is right in your own eyes? Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. Cannot help it. Their very lives exuded it. My, my dad's a bit like that. My dad's getting quite old and quite frail. But he won't stop talking about Jesus. He doesn't meet many people these days because he doesn't get out much. But if he meets a doctor taking his blood pressure, he tells him about Jesus. If a nurse is putting a needle in his arm, he talks about Jesus. If you put him on a park bench somewhere and go, someone goes and sits next to him, he talks about Jesus. He can't help it. He exudes Jesus. I know other people like that. If they buy a sandwich in Pret-a-Manger, they talk about Jesus. How can they stop it? reminds me of that old poem. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard a drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle, let men burn and lend no hand? Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? Verse 21 says, after further threats, they couldn't decide how to punish them. Punish them. Because uh, all the people were praising God. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years of age. So they, uh, they let them go. Well, we don't know what kind of threats they had. I've got to finish. I've got to speed up. So I will speed up. 
What happened next? The disciples went home. It's a brave thing to do. They could have, they could have left, couldn't they? Could have said, we're in deep trouble, boys. Let's get out of here. Let's go to another country. Let's hide away. Anyone got a safe house? The Sadducees are off to me. They didn't. They went home where everyone was praising God. People were praising God. They went into the house. They all prayed together. They quoted from the Psalms. And, and uh, I'm going to really shortcut a lot of this. The people prayed for courage and strength. They prayed, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus, your, your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, what happened after they prayed? Can you remember? The place shook. That's how much faith they had. That's how much connected with the Lord God they were. The place where they were sitting and praying shook violently. And what did the believers do? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were bold. They were empowered. They shared their possessions. We read the story, the last bit of this chapter 4. Some chap sold his house. He sold his field. He put all his belongings at the disciples' feet to be used in the proclamation of the gospel. With great power, we read in verse 33. The, the apostles continued to testify about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not secretly, not timidly, not from behind closed doors, not just waiting for that opportunity to say something. And from that day on, says verse 34, there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land and possessions sold them. And it was distributed to those who were in need. So we speak about persecution. It was predicted. And rather than silence the apostles, it made them more determined. Rather than scare the people, it made them pray more. It made them share more. They relied totally upon the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, continued to spread and more and more believed because there is power in the name of Jesus.